1: Welcome everyone to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. My name is Ben Smith. I'm joined by my colleague, the Starbucks to my Dunkin' Donuts, Curtis Wister. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Ben, doing well. I have a fresh Starbucks right next to me here too, so that was good. Well, we we had this whole conversation about how much coffee we drink today, so I figured this was gonna be a, a topical way to introduce our show. It's perfect. Uh, and I know one thing that... Our team, when we've been looking at podcasts and all the topics we've been reviewing and and trying to look for forward in the future, one thing we've been looking for really is a guest that can speak to the relationship that the state of Maine has with our aging population. Yeah, and I know we we've touched here and there, right? We've got very laser focused on specific areas and and what systems are are actually happening, and we talked like Marty Grohman, especially for energy and kind of things like that, where. It's really helpful to identify very specific areas, but to look at the whole system. Let's look at yeah. the whole structure. Yeah. Let's look at what's currently in place and identifying really and addressing the needs of today's seniors and retirees. So, where are the gaps and what needs to be addressed? How is the federal government, state legislature, and Maine's local communities working together to, to help today's and hopefully tomorrow's aging populations? Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, obviously in the state of Maine, it's, you know, it's good to look inside the state. But what's happening with other states? Uh, Are there other states that are more of a role model out there of how our state can support our aging population? Mm -hmm. So that was really the premise of today's show. So our next guest is the executive director of the Maine Council on Aging, and she leads and manages a broad multidisciplinary network of more than 120 organizations, businesses, and community members working to ensure we can all live healthy, engaged, and secure lives as we age in our homes and community settings. In this role, she advances statewide public policy initiatives, provides leadership within Maine's aging networks, and supports Maine's Legislative Caucus on Aging. Her areas of specific focus includes housing, which we, we've talked about a lot, mm. uh, transportation, uh, workforce. I know it was a Barbara Babkirk thing <laughs> on talking workforce. Aging in place, that which we hear from our clients a lot of. All the they, the yeah. biggest goal they have is they want to age in place and be independent as long as they can and also care across all settings. Mm-hmm. She leads the main healthy aging initiative and the Tri-State Learning Collaborative on Aging, a regional learning collaborative aimed at Increasing the collective impact of community driven aging initiatives. She annually organizes statewide and regional events that advance aging policy. She's also co authored Building a Collaborative Community Response to Aging in Place and Maine's Blueprint for Action on Aging. She's a licensed Maine attorney and has worked for 17 years in the Maine Office of the Attorney General. Last but not least, she also graduated from the University of Maine School of Law, go Black Bears, and the (laughs) University of Maine at Amherst. So I'd like at this point to welcome Jess Maurer to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. Jess, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. You sound very busy. Yeah, you you, 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 Well, in a lot of great ways, and I know Jess. Um, I, I, we've reached out, and I, I'm, I'm so thankful. Uh, Curtis and I are both are very thankful that you come on and share some of your time with uh, what we've done of our show, and I'm really hoping that um, that our show today, together with you, you can really lend um, a really good light on what's really happening in the state and and kind of go, hey, here's where we're doing well, and here's some opportunities that we're working on to improve. I, I, I'm really excited about that conversation today. So, but I want to get in. I know one of the things we always do with our show is to learn a little bit about you. So I'd love to hear about just your background and how you ultimately found your calling in public service. Uh,
2: well, uh, as uh, well, I guess I will say as um, corny as it sounds, uh, I, uh, I've always wanted to help people. Uh, and that's why I went to law school. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, I I was promised that that would be something that would, you know, I would, I would lose that idealistic view, but I never have actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, you know, obviously I worked, uh, for the office of the attorney general. Um, so, uh, working, you know, on behalf of the public, really, uh, is my first and and long, you know, career in in that sector. But uh, the last seven years that I was in the office of the Attorney General, I was actually a special assistant attorney general, and I worked directly uh, with Attorney General then Steve Rowe, and then later uh, Attorney General Janet Mills, who's now the governor, mm-hmm. um, and was a was a special assistant doing public policy work, really, um, at the federal and, and state level. And I realized that that was way more fun than litigating um so <laughs> um and I blame me there yeah. yeah I don't yeah exactly uh and so I actually uh left the office uh to run Steve Rowe's campaign for governor which was really a lot of fun I run I ran a primary campaign and uh that was a really terrific way by the way to see the state and to learn so much about I Maine's people and industries and uh so I i find that that was a real gift i would never do it again uh but i but i would do it I, you know if i had to do it over i'd do it over but then uh, i would never do it again
1: <laughs> right i, yeah. Yeah. I hear you
2: <laughs> yeah absolutely um but anyway so that that was really uh, i learned i learned my love of uh doing really advocacy uh and public policy in in my time in the ag's office i really wanted to do something uh when I was out to to further particular cause and I worked a lot in the area of aging and, and that job came up and it,
1: and it just worked out perfectly for me. So that's, that's my, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Okay. I like it. Well, talk to us about the main council on aging. I'd love to hear a little bit about the origin story there, how it was started and also about building this network of organizations that can discuss and support aging in the state of Maine. Because you know, I was on the board of Literacy Volunteers of Maine and trying to collaborate even literacy volunteers, local groups, and everyone's got territories and everyone's got their own ideas. We do it this way and we don't do it that way. So I, I know just from a organizational perspective and trying to build co- cohesion and consensus around what ideas are out there and where we should advance, I, I'm really interested in just all of that together and how yeah. how that was going.
2: Sure. Well, um, so the Maine Council on Aging uh, started uh, from a meeting, uh, a very intentional meeting, um, where uh, actually AARP Maine, the policy director of AARP Maine, and myself at the time, I was the executive director of the Maine Association of Area Agencies on Aging, doing policy mm-hmm. work on behalf of older Mainers, And um, we looked around and said, uh, "There's really nobody out here in in Maine talking about these thirty thousand foot issues collectively." Uh, and so we have the nursing home lobby who's, you know, at the legislature day in and day out asking for money for for more nursing homes, more money for nursing homes. And the home care lobby asking for more money for home care. And the area agencies on aging asking for more money for Meals on Wheels and family caregiver services. And nobody is talking about uh you know sort of these bigger pictures right Mm -hmm. the bigger picture which is really very stunning which is we're living longer than ever before um as we age we're finding we have new needs Uh, we're the first you know this sort of older cohort we have right now is the first generation that is really wedded to staying in their homes and if not in their homes in their communities And yeah, we haven't done a damn thing about it. I mean, like, let's just be honest. Mm -hmm. So like we have a a completely shifting sort of view of how we want to age and it doesn't at all match what we have and what we have, right, are significant workforce shortages, housing mismatches no public transportation, um, no geriatricians, no specialty care for older people. Um, And so we said, we literally brought 35 organizations together and said, let's have a conversation about where we are in the world. and, And do we believe that there is a gap in in the conversation about aging in Maine, and the answer was universally yes, there is a gap. Um, and do we think that we should come together to create a you know an organization that would be bigger than all of us um, collectively and would help spur that conversation? And the answer again was yes, absolutely. And so we were founded with. I don't know, something like 39 uh, organizations, you know, signed on at the time after that meeting, wow. we created, you know, all the bylaws. I will say that the key, when you were saying it's hard to put a network together, um, the key here was understanding um, that nursing homes and home care folks had not been in the same room together for a long time and healthcare was like far, far away. And so our idea was that we would build something that had sort of those three pillar elements for if you consider sort of aging services, the AAAs or the community action programs. But this idea that if we brought those forces together for a common purpose and we had those people governing, right? So we have always, since, since 2012 until right now, have had the leaders of home care and the leading leaders of nursing home care sitting at that table because we said, look, you know, we have to stop saying I need money and, and you know, you don't, you're not as worthy. Mm-hmm. We have to link arms together and say we need more money. All of us collectively need more money. We need more resources to make sure that we can meet the needs of older people as, as in Maine. And I have to show up for you and you have to show up for her and she has to show up for me. And, and that's what we built. We have never left a consensus model. We are on a consensus model. And so for instance, like three years ago when the home care initiative came up, one of our members was the lead organization promoting that home care referendum. And two of our members were the lead opposition mm. <laughs> to that. And we took no position and mm-hmm. you know managed to stay in that no position world. And the nice part about it was, is that we were right there as an organization to pick up where we needed to go for the next iteration. So, you know, people can criticize us for that as well, but we really, we we have said, look, we we need a middle road here um, and we need common ground. and And that's how we find it, by looking at the bigger issues. Um so we've grown obviously from 30 you know 39 organizations to 120 organizations now and we're you know now we're really diverse i mean we started with aging services and healthcare um and you know now we include banks and the Maine women's lobby and the natural resources council of Maine mm-hmm. and you know organizations you wouldn't necessarily think would be a part of um, our work, but we're really aligned uh, with so much of that, right? If we want to address uh, climate concerns, uh, we have the eighth oldest housing stock in May, in, in the country, um, and m- most of those old houses have older people living in them,
3: yeah.
2: um, and a lot of them don't have enough money to weatherize their homes. And so, like, you know, we can do a win-win if we could figure out, you know, how to um, help older people Uh, who are lower income weatherize their homes all over Maine through some sort of energy core. I mean, these are like, these are real things we need to talk about. Um, And so that's where I say, you know, we went from really talking about some core aging issues, you know, a decade ago to now really having some broader conversations as well, trying to align the core things that we want to get done with what else, what's happening in the rest of the state
1: as well. Yeah. And and I think what, you know, you're bringing up some really good points because when you look at, you know, even for example, not having weatherized homes and all in Marty made a point in in one of our energy episodes about, Hey, you know, that person buys a full tank of oil and it's not weatherized. And that, that tank of oil goes through much more rapidly. So that, that level of cost to continue to fill that tank Mm -hmm. in, in not getting kind of that yield out of that tank of oil. so now. Now they're burning through their resources and their money. And yeah, they got to stay, they, they want to stay home, but it's not really affordable because they're not weatherized. And now they they have to go to some other place. So it, it's just all, all that kind of these core problems all reverberate through lots of different systems, lots of different organizations, lots of different yeah. programs. And and I think that's why you know I, again just from an outsider's perspective, Jess. Of I think that's why the it, it's just very important to have a place. That we're talking about aging. We're talking about all of those effects and how we're all being impacted and affected because right. all, all these things are, are really important. And I, I think humbly in our show, we tried to do a little of this. And that's why I, I think it's, it's kind of great to kind of get your expertise in this today. So I want to ask a, just a, a, another question about you, Jesse, here. And, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, but so what do you, what do you love the most about your work today? Like, what's the thing that really, like, you get up in the morning, you're really passionate about, you're like, I'm really excited to get to do this today.
2: You know, I mean, I think, I think it's just about the opportunity in the moment that we're in. Um, I mean, I think you can tell I'm pretty passionate about this. Um, And I say all the time, you know, uh, we are pioneers on a new frontier. Um, We are literally uh, developing the next iteration of our society right now. We just don't happen to know it. Um, and that's pretty powerful to me, you know, I mean, we're, we are developing solutions. And so, you know, I really think that we're only limited by our own inability to think outside the box or to throw away the box. Um, and so, you know, on my best days, (laughs) I love my job and I think it's really exciting work. Um, and, uh. And it's just—it's about culture change, and—and um, and I know change can be really painful. And actually, we'll talk about that in a little bit. I know we will, but—but <laughs> uh, but it's also—it's um, also needed. And you know, nobody ever changes until you absolutely need to, uh, and we're at that point. We're at that tipping point here in Maine, um, and so you know it's it's fun to be in that place in the room thinking about. So what's that look like?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, nice. So I want to I want to ask now, kind of going to because there's so much we've got to cover today <laughs> in terms of this concept of the state of the state of aging in Maine. Uh, so I want to kick off with a question for you, Jess. So I want to start with. All right, Maine has the highest percentage. That's 27% of people 60 years of age or older of any state or territory. And that's that's just a 2018. Yep. So I know there's lots of data there, but let's start with that. So that's 2018 American Community Survey by the U.S. Census Bureau. So, and of course, we see this anecdotally, right? And I know Curtis and I are, are more in Central Maine. We have uh, our colleagues in, in Southern Maine as well, but we see this really with younger adults too. With a lot of colleges, universities, and where we are, leaving the state in search of educational, economic opportunities, while also seeing older adults staying or coming into the state for retirement, right? As a, you know, I think that a lot of people have this fond memory of Maine and summering and the things that we do. But so there just seems to be a short supply of available workforce, and then also care partners to meet the needs of Maine's aging population. So I I guess when you have that friction, right, as you have this mismatch of there's a need, and there's really not a supply. So what's the long term solution here? And what can be done in the short term to band aid the structural problem?
2: Yeah, so can I, uh, if you don't mind, uh, Mm -hmm. I'll just poke a little hole in in your premise, um, which is uh, that, uh, you know, younger people are leaving Maine and of course they are, and they're leaving Montana and they're leaving New York city. I mean, they, young people leave where they grew up to go somewhere else. Cause they just don't want to be around their parents anymore. Let's be honest. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Come, on. Come on. Yeah. 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 Come right. On. Let's be real. <laughs> yeah. Let's be real. But, uh, you know, Charlie Colgan, I don't know if you remember him, but you know, he's a former state economist and, uh, but bef- he worked with us actually at the very first start of the work we did in 2013, uh, and we had him uh, do some work for us and then and then talk about it. And he said, and I'll, I will never forget this, if we had put an ankle bracelet on every child been, born since 1980 such that they had been unable to leave the state, we would be exactly in the same workforce shortage. We hmm. haven't had enough babies since the 80s to replace the number of workers that we knew since the boomers started. We knew how many they were. <laughs> How many jobs they were taking up and what the kind of hole they would leave, you know, when they began to retire or leave the workforce. So, you know, this we like to pretend this is some sort of surprise, but it's not. And it's Mm. really about the fact that we haven't had enough babies for the last four years that we're in the situation. So I just want to be, you know, like really clear about what the problem is, um, because we're going to talk about some discomfort now. There is no quick fix. Well, and just wow. I,
1: I'll lay yeah. another point, though, because two ways to get, you know, Population increase. One is what you said, babies, but two is immigration, right? Is right, you know. Yeah. I, I, and and I'm not trying to get political in anywhere, oh, but, no. but but it's to say, hey, you know, like immigration has positive effects. I know we we have negative connotation to that too, yeah. but you know, getting people in and getting skilled people in, especially to come in and do certain jobs, yeah, you know, that's another way to kind of solve some of that as well.
2: No question, no question. There's, you know, I mean, like, there's just, uh, there's just what four well there's actually just three components to population right it's births deaths and in mm-hmm. migration out migration migration so we you know we haven't had enough births so necessarily we need more in migration so you're absolutely right right and the key here though is that what we are experiencing in Maine i think it's important to have some level setting is that we are at the very tip of the aging wave in America, but we are not uh, at the very tip of the aging wave in the world. And so Germany and Japan have gone ahead of us. They have already gone through this painful experience of not having enough young people to meet their needs, of going through care crisis workforce. You know, we have a lot to learn from others. And so we also have, I think, an obligation to help the rest of the country. So I bring that up because, again, uh, you know, we're the oldest, But New Hampshire is, you know, Vermont's next, New Hampshire's after that, then Tennessee. I mean, you know, parts of upstate New York, all around the country, we're seeing this, you know, phenomenon Mm -hmm. of um, older folks with a smaller, you know, population of workforce. And that means that all those other states and places want workers too. Whether we're talking about people new to our country or people you know, from Arizona moving to Maine, um, we're all competing for the same people. So I will tell you, while I completely agree that immigration and we need more immigration nationally and to the state is not gonna solve the workforce shortage in any short period of time. It is not mm-hmm. a short term fix. Um, We have to focus on it. Our state is not welcoming to people of color. Our people, you know, our state is not welcoming to people who are different. Um, We're very rural. We don't have the things millennials want, which are, you know, walkable downtowns and public transportation and,
1: Uh, you know, know, I
2: mean, so let's be clear. I mean, like, people need to want to move here, too. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not like it's the only option (laughs) in the country, right? There are 49 other options. Um, And so, we do have to think about who we are as a, you know, as a people. And, and as we think about that, you know, migration conversation, but I'm not going to talk about that because I, I totally agree, but I actually don't see it as a solution. Hmm. It is the long-term solution,
3: yeah. but it's
2: not uh, even a remotely short-term solution or, you know, anywhere near a, a quick fix or a aid. So I'll, I'll say, you know, from, uh, You know, our workforce. I think I think that's the first thing I'll say is we have to accept what I just said, that our workforce is our workforce, like the people we have in the state right now are, are our workers and we can do all we can do to compete with other states and other countries to get people to move here but that is a hard sell. And so we need to look at the workforce we have, we need to prioritize the jobs we need people to be in right so and that and i'm 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 here you know selfishly talking about the needs of older people but mm-hmm. i'll tell you you know these are you know childcare workers emergency service providers healthcare providers you know, direct care workers. We need people, grocery store clerks, right? I mean, when we talk, we need food production, right? Mm -hmm, These are the, so you think about the core workers we need, we need to prioritize those workers. And then we need to incentivize those workers taking those jobs over restaurant jobs, and over, you know, Walmart. And what I'm saying is not popular, because what I'm suggesting is that we probably need to right size, um, you know, not having, And I could go down the list, you know, uh, 100 restaurants in Brunswick, Maine, you know, I just just where I live, you know, it's probably not going to be sustainable, uh, you know, to have that many uh, that kind of infrastructure, even when you think about, Hmm. you know, sort of back offices, even when you're talking about aging services, there's going to have to be consolidation, we're seeing consolidation in healthcare, we just don't have enough people to take the jobs we have, which means we're going to have to figure out how to right size you know, sort of our organizations and our jobs and how we work collaboratively together. Um, obviously, we're also going to have to um, uh, think about, you know, using technology in different ways, which is what other, you know, what Japan and Germany have both done um, in relation to modernizing some of, uh, of the way their workforce engages. Um, you know, so this is, <laughs> it's also an all hands on deck thing, I just want to yeah. say. Um, You know, we, we talk a lot and I know, you know, you just mentioned Barb, Babkirk, you know, we actually need every person who has left the workforce who can work to go back to work. Um, We need to be talking about that. Um, It's not just good for you to go back to work, by the way, it is good for you to go back to work and doing something you love to do. Nobody wants you to go back and do something you hated doing for your entire career. If you don't want responsibility, don't go into a management job, Joe, go, you know, Pack boxes at Bean. trust me, they need you. You know, yeah. like the thing is, is it's like almost like a civic duty kind of thing. Like we need everybody to work, uh, you know, like it's that's what's going to keep our economic, our economic engine going, whether, you know, it's found it's it's working in the local um, uh, convenience store in your small little town uh, a couple of days a week. You know, if it's just that, uh, that might be the difference between keeping that convenience store open or not. Um, with our current workforce shortage. So, you mm. know, there, there's, there are a lot of solutions, but uh, and there isn't one quick one, but that was, that's my thinking about it.
3: Yeah, that was good. Um, so, I want to kind of keep going here, Jess. So, there are now over 100 communities in Maine that are a part of AARP's network of age friendly states and communities. Um, and in 2020, the entire state of Maine uh, joined that network. Um, And this led to government agencies and more than 50 organizations and individuals creating Maine's first age-friendly state plan, um, which is to improve engagement, communication, employment, financial security, health, housing, recreation, and transportation for older Mainers. So would you mind just kind of sharing with us sort of what that plan covers and what that plan hopes to accomplish?
2: Yeah, sure. I think, you know, it's important to to understand that... (laughs) The age-friendly movement is is so critical because it is the core player, right? Whether it's an age-friendly community, now there's age-friendly health systems, mm. there's age-friendly universities, and we're talking about an age-friendly state. And at the core of that, and it's you know at the governor's signature, the, the state of Maine has committed to being more thoughtful about the way it engages older people. Um, in the very broadest sense, and what it's really saying is, we're going to break down governmental silos, and we're going to be committed to working with each with with other um, agencies and other organizations outside of the state um, to really uh, have a holistic view about aging and me. Um, and as I say often, um, aging is not just about health or needing services. Um, and yet the Department of Health and Human Services, right, is, has always been charged with taking, yeah. the lead, um, around aging and, you know, that in, in some ways, and I mean, I don't mean no offense to anybody, but it's a little bit offensive, right? I mean, mm-hmm. because it's also uh, about the, the Department of Labor and the Department of Economic Community Development, you know, and Main Housing and the Department of Transportation, um, and so you know, we've we're going down this road to say, yes, okay, well, DHHS is going to lead this effort, but all of those organizations are going to be involved. And the the reality is, I mean, sort of the process here. Is that those agencies and agriculture and a couple of other ones, they're meeting collectively all the time now talking about the work that they do and how they can align, align uh, their investments and pull levers, you know, sort of collectively, to sort of make sure that we are capitalizing on the value of older people, right? We're really um, embracing all that older people have and are bringing to the state, but are also collectively thinking about their needs yeah. as a systemic view, not, mm-hmm. you know, an individual need. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they're coming out to us and saying, well, this is what we're going to do. We want you to do it with us. And so that's really what this age-friendly plan is, you. you know, with there's not a lot of meat on their bones. I'm sure if you've read it, it's a 70-page document. It's very good, but there's not a lot of meat. If you yeah. go and read it, it doesn't say who's going to do what and how they're going to do it and under what time frame. You know, like We haven't created a, uh, a strategic plan behind gotcha. it or an action plan behind it, but those are all really laudable. And And each of us, I mean, so we are meeting now quarterly as a stakeholder group with the state. They're doing their work. Um, they're asking us to do our work, to do it collaboratively with them sometimes. Sometimes, you know, we're doing our own thing, which we'll talk again about in other ways. But it really is uh, a recognition of keeping, I think it's like keeping the, you know, the, the gas pedal depressed is Mm -hmm. what this is all about. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's not going away. We have a plan. We have state government meeting on a regular basis, talking about this plan. They're bringing us all together to talk about this plan. We're making progress and there's no question about that. So that's, but that's what the beauty of this age friendly concept is, is that the organization is taking uh, responsibility for being intentional about engaging older people and you know sort of the, the demographic so well,
1: yeah it, and, and just I, I just want to add to that too is it, it feels like selfishly for all of us right is it it's not like we can look at this plan or look at what's happening in, in the state of state of aging here is to look at this and go well that's not me right I'm not right. you know that, uh, that, right. that's some other stakeholder group and uh, right. that's that, that's not really impactful to me. Well, except for you know, we all have various roots where we are today, and you know those roots are going to be strong, whichever you know, for a lot of different reasons. And so, there, there, even if you're not in the that kind of the the population that that cohort, we're talking about the older cohort today you're going to be there at some point in sure. having structures and infrastructure and programs and, and thoughtfulness about how you're going to be treated one day. It just seems like very logical and um, kind of yeah. an easy thing to agree to, honestly. Yeah. From my, yeah. I, I know I'm, and I'm being Pollyanna maybe here, yeah. but But I I think from all those lenses, it goes, hey, I think starting with let's let's look at this population, looking at needs that aren't being addressed and all that. So I want to pivot to this question of let me tell you a quick story first, Yeah, please. Yeah, Yeah.
2: because I'll tell you a quick story before we had an age friendly state committee. OK, I served on I still I still serve on the Public Transit Advisory Council to DOT, Department of Transportation and I work really collaboratively with Maine Housing around um, development of affordable housing for older people, right? And for for years, I'm sitting at one or those two tables saying, you know, you really should talk to the Department of Transportation. You know, you really should talk to Maine Housing. And it took me like years to, and then they all got in a room together and they were all like, it was it was fascinating. It's like, oh, you mean when we approve this design that doesn't accommodate a bus? coming under the train, you know, the the shelter, because it's not high enough, and the buses have to back, I mean, like, all of a sudden, they were like, oh, we have all these things we could do, we could actually talk to each other, just about design, right, just about the design of housing as it relates to public transit. So it's a perfect example. And so that's what's happening now. Now, I hear all the time, All the time I hear about, you know, these same actors and many others are sitting in rooms together talking about these things. And it's just that part is just beautiful.
1: And and Mm. I I think that's where, again, we've been kind of privately or selfishly very uh, lucky here is having, I don't know, 52, 53, 54 chances to discuss aging in whatever way, shape or form. Mm. It's just these are conversations that we have we never had or never or not ever heard people uh, address. So the more that people are kind of doing this and the more we're kind of creating spotlights and again, we're nowhere near to your level there, Jess, but I think that's something where it's it's just really neat that, Hey, this, this is a group that's having a spotlight on them and saying, here, here's ways that we can make this better. So I want to ask you a question though, of let's kind of maybe look backwards at the state of Maine and let, maybe you could highlight to us areas that collectively Maine has historically done really well in support older Mainers, like wh- what are we good at? I guess is the question, <laughs> and none and nothing maybe could be an answer. But uh, what what do you what do you think?
2: Yeah, you know that that one. So I would say the best part about Maine, just generally, is that we haven't lost a strong sense of community, and you know we're made up of small towns. I mean, you know that, right? I mean, we're yeah. just we're just a, we are the most rural state in the country. That is the beauty, and so you know over the last decade what Maine has done really well is support the development of what are aging and community initiatives. Um, And that can be a formal age-friendly community, which is a formulaic kind of thing. But we have, we have about 130 of our 500, you know, cities and towns That have some sort of, you know, either organic or very intentional community initiative that are doing all kinds of brilliant things, you know, and and one of the things I like best when I first started working in this work, I did all these focus groups all around Maine and I was like listening to people talk about how they got information. And I remember like leaving and we talked to like 150 people through these focus groups. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, the only way we're ever going to really sort of have Real exposure for everybody in Maine about what services exist is if we talk to people one on one. Like that's like because you don't know what you, you don't know what you don't know, right? And and you don't know what you need to know until you need to know it. And and so these community initiatives are all if you think about 130 initiatives, right, all around Maine, and there's somewhere between 20 and 100, or 200 people engaged in those. And all those people know all the services that are available to people in their community. They Mm. know what the food sources are. They know, you know, what the resources are for heating. They know how to get somebody a meal um, or you know, home repair or a ramp built if they need to, right? They know all of this stuff. So it's brilliant. So that's what I can say we have done the best at is this community development grassroots up. And I would say, you know, like this age-friendly state plan is great because it's finally, you know, like some of it's top down.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I, I wouldn't say we've been particularly good, but the other pieces we've, we have a lot of really good players here. I will say that our health systems generally are pretty impressive. Um I will call out Maine Health because they, you know, are, are an early adopter of, of the age-friendly health system. If you haven't heard about it, I encourage you to bring them on because it's really fascinating stuff. And, you know, I know you're going to ask me a question about ageism and I, I want you to, because it's really, is the most important thing we could talk about is ageism. But, you know, I've been saying, you know, that the age-friendly health system product project or model is a great disruptor. ageism in healthcare. It's a critical disruptor because it forces a clinician to ask what matters most, which means it it means I say to you, Ben, what matters most to you? And I have to like see you instead of see you as a stereotype of an 80 year old man who can't hear and, you know, has cancer and I don't really want to talk to you. I'm going to just try to give you some drugs and move you along. Right. I only have 15 Mm -hmm. minutes. So it's, it's a disruptor. So you know, that's re- been really good. And they've been really, you know, terrific leaders. I will also say our university systems have been so great. Uh, UNE is uh, an age-friendly um, university, but they also have the Center for um, Excellence in Aging and Health. We've got the UMaine Center on Aging. St. Joe's has created, you know, a Center on Excellence in Aging. They, they have done some really cool stuff. Um, and particularly the University of Maine system um, has a whole aging um, uh, initiative. And um, They've got patents, they've done, you know, community engagement. As a matter of fact, UNE too also, you know, embeds clinical um, students, you know, Mm. into nursing homes and hospice care for, you know, like there's some really good cutting edge stuff around um, healthcare and um, education uh, going on in Maine uh, as well. And, you know, I mean, I'm not to say there isn't, uh, there aren't other things, but I will say also, you know, our foundations we were, you know, 1% of foundation money nationally goes into aging. And in Maine, that's a very different formula. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've been really blessed. Yeah. With leaders um, in the world of foundation who, you know, were smart enough to look around and say, well, <laughs> this is this who we have here in Maine. We should be paying attention to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, so that's been a real, a real blessing as well. So, yeah. It's
3: a great mm-hmm. list. Yeah, it is. So I'm gonna be the bad guy here for a second, and I want yeah. you to talk about maybe some areas collectively, uh, you know, where Maine historically could improve on how we support our aging population.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, you know, well, where, where?
1: Who?
3: All right, where do yeah. I start? All right, Obviously, how about like the top we're... top couple, top few here, right, the big yeah. I mean, <laughs>
2: So, you know, what I say all the time uh, is the number one problem. And, of course, you guys being the host here is a little bit probably less uh, true for for the people who may be listening here. Uh, the number one problem for our older people in Maine is poverty. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we have a whole bunch of people. Um, that I mean, 10s of 1000s of people who don't have enough money to meet their basic needs, but don't qualify for any means tested benefits. And so these are, you know, these are the people that keep me awake at night. Um, Mm -hmm. They're the people who are, you know, really proud, never going to ask for help, um, making do with what they have and are feeling really good about that. Um, But they're not, you know, repairing their homes when they need it. They're, maybe only eating once a day, they're keeping their houses at 50, Um, they're maybe cutting their pills in half or not taking all of their pills. And, you know, this costs us all that we don't, you know, sort of see this and do something about this, because, I mean, I can tell you what the downstream costs are of any number of things, and that's a real challenge. So, you know, we have really, um, uh, and and, you know, when I think about that, what I, you know, the response to that is, is creating uh, understanding who's poor in Maine. Because we look at the poverty level. We don't look at where, where 150, you know, FPL is or mm. or or 200. We have a third, a th- more than a third of older Mainers live on Social Security alone with an average Social Security of $16,000. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Hmm. Think about yeah. living yeah. at Oh yeah. it, dollars helped. we know know some of them yeah yeah
2: exactly so you know we i mean we have to do something about creating tiered access to services and you know those folks that i just talked about cannot afford out of pocket um for anything um but definitely not for home care um and so you know that that's one of the big challenges so the other two big pieces so that's you know poverty is number one but the big pieces are our direct care workforce you can't get care It doesn't matter whether you're a millionaire or you're not um you know you just cannot get home care right now if you know even if you can pay for it and then we have thousands of people in Maine who are not getting the care they're entitled to under ma- medicaid just because we don't have workers we have whole wings of nursing homes offline right now because there aren't enough workers and we literally I guarantee you this week at Maine Health, somewhere between 100 and 120 people are in the hospital at Maine Med because they can't be discharged to home or to a residential care setting because of workforce. So we're like mm-hmm. stockpiling older people now in hospitals. And, and you know, people are surprised about that, but it's, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing some of the most gut-wrenching, heart-rending stories about people who can't get care. It's, it is, it is definitely the crisis. It's beyond crisis. It's it was a crisis four years ago when we you know were trying to get more resources. This is about the fact that you can get make forty two thousand dollars at Amato's making, uh, being a manager, and you're going to make twenty two thousand dollars if you're really lucky being a home care worker. And you know even if you love being a home care worker, who wouldn't go make. more at a model, you know, this is about our workforce shortage. And we have to, we really have got to figure out whether we want to do something. Actually, somebody at DOL just called this a market failure of this, you know, segment of the market. And so if that's true, you know, we have to subsidize it. We have to put real money into this and say, these are jobs we want people to take. So we have to pay $42,000, even though for some reason we think that, you know, providing the most intimate care of someone (laughs) isn't worth that, but it's worth making a pizza. You know, I don't, uh, it is, it is mind boggling to me. The other piece is, is really housing. I mean, we have just such a housing mismatch. And, you know, like I said, you know, it is our plan, all of us, that we're just going to stay in our homes. Well, that's great, except for the fact that our homes don't always work for us as we age. And, you know, there's only one bathroom and it's on the second floor. And I cannot tell you the number of people I know of or have heard of who are crawling up and down. You know, their stairs once a week to take a shower and pissing in a pot in their living room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I don't mean to yeah. be rude, but this mm-hmm. is what's happening is what yeah. we've come to, yeah. you know, and what happens is, you know, and there's any number of reasons, right? You know, you've got a spouse that dies and you can't take care of the property anymore, or your physical limitations don't allow you to go, you know, take take care of the property anymore, or your income doesn't allow you to take care of the property anymore. And, but everybody waits until it's a crisis. And then when they do, they call the area agency down and have to have a new place to live. Well, there's a 10,000 person wait list to access affordable housing for older wow. people. There's just no low income housing to be had. And that's affordable. And, you know, the average waits like three to five years. So if you're 89, you've never called for help before. You hate asking for help. And you make that phone call and find out that you can't get what you need. You're going to hang up. You're never going to call back. Sure. And you know what you're going to do. You're just going to stay living in that house. It doesn't work for you. That's what's happening all over Maine. Uh, and, you know, we we just we have got to in, again, incentivize the development of all kinds of housing in all kinds of places, um, and you know we're not we're not even scratching the surface of the, the current demand with what we're building. Um, but we need to be thinking differently about how we're building it, what we're building, how we incentivize it, and that's just a whole other conversation. I could talk to you for literally an yeah. hour.
1: Uh, just kind of echo what you're saying there, because uh, again, enough situations where we've seen to your point about the bathroom on the second floor, and you're you're kind of doing your bio work on the. First- first floor, but uh, then also the, the basement's the only one that's got the washer dryer hookup. And, you know, we've had lots of conversations about the, one of the biggest risks uh, physically to uh, aging population has been fall risk. So here you are, you have to, you have to go up and down stairs and and you have an instability problem regardless, and you are going to put yourself at danger. The more and more you continue to go up and down these stairs, but I have to wash my clothes. I have to use the restroom. Right and I can't go anywhere else I'm stuck. And I'm basically, you know, I'm not trying to make, you know, there's so doom. Much,
2: there's so much we can do about this, Ben. I mean, we have the money, we have the resources, we have the technology, we can do something about this is this, This is an easier
1: solution than the workforce one, honestly.
2: Mm. Um, And it's going to cost a lot less money. We just really have to get it together. Gotcha.
1: Um, There are solutions there. Well, I want to keep going here because we got a lot I want to still cover with you, Jess. And I attended the ARP listening session in Brewer. This this must have been 19, probably, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So that was fascinating because to your point about hearing from a lot of stakeholders is at the Eastern Area Agency on Aging. And it was it was fantastic because I I learned a lot of hearing everybody come together. And one thing you talked about was the resource list was, hey, if I only knew that this agency was doing this and this and this, or if I only knew that there's a there's like a a wood bank that I could burn wood from or whatever, there all those things you're hearing from. But one thing that I took away was ageism was a theme that was coming up a lot, like just a lot of, I want to ask about how you see Mainers experiencing ageism and how that's creating barriers to better lives in retirement. That again, to your point, that's probably the biggest question we're going to ask today. I want to just hear from your perspective of what you're seeing, how it's, how, how they're experiencing ageism. Cause maybe this is a very new term for a lot of people too, by the way, maybe they've never heard what this is. So maybe define it and then how this creating barriers sure so um everything we've
2: talked about so far that's wrong is an example of ageism by the
1: way yeah
2: <laughs> yeah i'm just gonna be honest so um because there are so ageism of course is and and spoiler alert for everybody we are all ageist every single one of us just Anyway, we are, and it is bias or stereotype or discrimination on the basis of age. And so, you know, I like to tell the example of I live in Harpswell, I live down 123, it's, you know, 14 miles to Brunswick. And when I get behind somebody driving really slow, there's no options. And of course I assume it's an older person, right? Cause that is the stereotype. So I'm just being right out of call myself out. Right. So I want to be clear that I don't know, nothing happens about that. It's in my head. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, you know, damn old people driving mm-hmm. slow, right. Yep. So that's. But we all have it. Right. And so what happens though, is that, and and why this is so important, is that uh, we make some assumptions that aren't necessarily true, because I have, by the way, passed those people, and it's a young woman driving, or a middle-aged guy, right? I'm like, okay, well, I was just flat-out wrong, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right, and so what we do is we make assumptions as employers, and we and I and I can tell you we have been. Let me just back up for a second and say, you know, since uh, COVID, as an organization, we weren't really taking on ages, and that's all we're doing now is talking about ageism because the over unbelievable, you know, ageism we saw and still see um, it resulted in, you know, more than 500,000 older people dying in this country, and they're still dying. Um, It didn't have to be that way. And we certainly uh, shouldn't have been pitting younger people needing to work against older people dying in the nursing home, you know, sort of whether that's okay or not. So, you know, we're doing this power and aging conversation now. So it's a project. And so we're hosting conversations with all kinds of people, media. HR directors, healthcare, uh, aging services, banks, you know, foundations, public health, anybody who wants to talk to us, we're talking to them about ageism. And, you know, the HR directors, when we talked to them, they these were the cream of the crop HR directors, some of them, they bit it, uh, you know, uh, that, oh, yeah, my vice president, you know, won't even consider somebody who's older, because they don't think that they can uh, do the technology. We talk, We were talking to a media news director, and she said, I, I can't afford older people. I mean, we weren't even talking with her about this stuff. You know, I can't afford older workers. And I'm like, well, how do you know?
1: <laughs> Right. It, yeah. You know? yeah. I'm like,
2: wow. Okay. Well, let's talk about best practices in terms of, you know, like publishing your salary. Cause you know, then everybody wins. Anybody who applies for that job is saying I will work for that salary. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're not wasting your time. You're not wasting their time. So I'm like, that's best practice. So, you know, what, what we know about how Americans think and feel about aging and older people is that, they don't think that ageism is real. And if they do, uh, they don't think it's as bad as other kinds of discrimination. So, like racism or, you know, homophobia. And the good news is that when you actually tell that story, that if you apply for a job and you're 55, like I am, and an employer thinks that's too old and won't even give me an interview, I'm pretty competent. Uh, I'm actually pretty competent with technology, mm-hmm. um but you know you could just ignore my resume um and i wouldn't get that job i wouldn't even get an interview for that job because of my age, and you can tell my age by my resume that's wrong, and people get that that's wrong um and and so, if you can have a conversation with them about age bias, they get it. The other piece is really important, and why you know ageism like racism. It, 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 you know, it's it's so pervasive. It's like the air we breathe, and it's it's all about right. There's systemic, so it's the right. information, the media, the messages we receive about aging. It's the, you know, it's it's called the last acceptable bias because you know we're still sending. You can still go to any grocery store and find unbelievably inappropriate birthday cards about people getting old. Now, if yeah. you saw any one of those about people being black or being gay, or anything like that, no way mm-hmm. would you have any of that, right? Mm. But it's okay. We're we're making fun of old people, and that is a part of our culture, and it's okay. That's just what we do, and so it is so ingrained in us and in our culture. And it's about resources and you know uh, rules about who can do what and who can't do what. Um, You're too old for that, or you're even too old to make decisions about your own care. I mean, you know, you think about all of these things, and then it operates right inside of me and the interpersonal level between us, right, in in our interconnected, but also within institutions. So I've already talked about what, you know, discrimination mm-hmm. looks like. So it's, it's pervasive and, um, and it's here, trust me, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that you can't get home care right now um, is a real intersection between, you know, uh, the fact that under uh, the workers who care for people who are older and disabled, people who are older and disabled are not considered productive, right? They're not considered valuable to our economy, and to our society. You can want it to be different, but that is the reality. And so why would we pay people who take care of them a lot of money? And by the way, they're mostly women and often people of color. So, mm-hmm. you know, like it's the perfect intersection. So yeah, the fact that you can't get a home care worker directly goes back to systemic ageism, you mm-hmm. know? And, and so it's a big issue. We have to address it. Um, I could tell you story. I, I mean, the reason we are about to start a wait list on Meals on Wheels in this state is because this last le- legislature was ageist. They passed the like, funding for school lunches for every kid, even though there was federal money, even though we didn't know when it was going to run out, took $20 million out of the, the Cascade Fund. We had a bill for $1.5 uh, million, <laughs> $1.5 they put $20 million in the reserve fund for Meals on Wheels, because we know that there's going to be a, a wait list quickly and they wouldn't fund it. Well, we don't know when the federal money is going to run out. I'm like, But kids, you yes, kids get the money. Older people know. And that leads to this other piece, which is that and I'm going to be done with ageism, is that uh, we believe as part of our view of, of aging, that this is an individual problem. And if I need Meals on Wheels, I probably didn't do something right. 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 I mean, right. so yeah. we have judgment about it. So this, this is the individual thing, right? That it's my problem to solve. If I can't find a home care worker, I actually think, or if I can't get my mom into a nursing home, I kind of think it's my fault or it's her fault. It's an individual responsibility as opposed to a systemic
1: challenge. Right. right. You're, systemic... you're not trying hard enough is what you're saying. Right.
2: right? Yeah. And so, so we, and so we have to come over, we have two barriers here, right? Mm-hmm. I have to overcome that belief and then I have to get government to overcome that belief, you know, or our legislators. So Mm -hmm. it's a little bit of a a heavy lift to get people to understand uh, that, in fact, you can't solve our workforce problem. You can't solve our housing crisis. You can't create a public transit system. These are all things that are systems that have to be financed and thought through, you know, at a systems level in a, in state government. And, uh, and that's what state government exists to do. So we do need to find the mm, collective will to push our legislators in that direction Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and to continue to address
3: ageism. So,
2: sorry, I'm not passionate about that at all.
3: (laughs) (laughs) It's it's an important dialogue, I think. And and I want to keep going here a little bit to something you referenced uh, a little earlier, and that's technology. So uh, in a previous episode of the show, we had John Deal, who's from Hartford Funds, come on our show and discuss uh, the MIT Age Lab study. On how technology in general will influence how we age. So I want to hone in on a specific piece kind of relevant to Maine, we think. So from your perspective, Jess, why is high-speed internet statewide in the state of Maine so vital for an aging population? Again, maybe top couple for, answers here. Yeah, I'll the t- I
2: mean, I'll give you the 30,000 foot view. Obviously, one is connection.
1: Yeah.
2: Mm. Um, you know, so the opposite of isolation is connection, and technology creates an opportunity for people to be connected with one another, learn from one another. You know, lifelong learning is really important. But by the way, again, we just assume, right? go back to the ageism, older people uh, don't use technology and what we're talking about are older people living alone, isolated. It's also critically important that older people continue to work. I think we talked about this earlier. Um, And so, you know, the lack of, you know, opportunity for an older person um, to also get a call job, right, in New Mexico that Mm. you can do from home, right? If you could just have um, high-speed internet, you could continue to work, right? Exactly. We're all moving into that world, right? So it's about work, it's about connection, and it's about health. Right. I mean, telehealth is one of the ways that we are going to bridge the workforce gap in Maine. And so, you know, we need to be able to do all kinds of things like in-home assessments for people who, you know, by by technology, we you know, we need to do all kinds of visiting, uh, you know, for health and behavioral health um, through through that kind of technology. Um and we are also, you know, it's gonna help bridge the workforce gap in the direct care workforce, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's all mm-hmm. kinds of ways that technology can have help us work smarter with the workforce we have. Sensio Systems Inc. has this now new um intelligent design. Uh, technology that helps people meet their plan of care on a minute by minute, day by day basis. Um, People love it. They're saving. You're not going to the hospital. They're not, you know, going to the ER. Um, They're having better health outcomes, you know, just by use of this technology. So we need to be able to deploy that technology. Um, Something as simple as Alexis, Um, the city of Saco, the the age friendly Saco initiative is using Alexis as a fall prevention Really cheap fall prevention, like they're programming in Alexis to call the Saco Fire Department when somebody
3: falls. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, (laughs) yeah.
2: You know, there's all sorts of things. I've just been talking about uh, folks with dementia who don't understand what a fire alarm is if they're living alone and there's new fire alarms that that say get out of the house yeah because exactly instead of the beeper which is just Mm. like hell is that i don't know what that is
1: right wow um,
2: these are the kinds of technologies you know we're thinking about and we need to be on the cutting edge of this stuff um we should be taking advantage of this stuff we should be testing it out so we should have tech we should have broadband everywhere
3: yeah
0: I'm
2: just going to say it.
1: Well, and, and Jess, I'll, I'll kind of add to and tie a couple things together. One is ageism and also technology. When we were rotating, obviously, during pandemic and using technology more, and a lot of our clients, you know, look, they can't come to us and it's tough to access certain buildings or drive to you. So there's times that we're, we're traveling to clients. and But of course, we don't want to do that during a pandemic because that puts them at risk. So we, we just put this out there like, look, there is this technology Zoom or Google Meet or whatever. We can do phone calls. We can, however you want to do, it let's let's connect right. what what was pretty amazing of of our experience was actually it was the the 85 and 90 year olds we're like they're like what we took some time we learned it you know we had a tablet we've been doing it with our family members anyway and we kind of figured this out and like the 40 and 50 and 30 year olds were just like ah oh, fumbling it. through it couldn't yeah. get their mic to work Right. <laughs> yeah yeah like, yeah you know, again, the stereotype and ageism here and the, the kind of the. If you were stereotyping how you think this is going to go, that was not at all how we thought that was going to go. And kudos to that. Like, again, they, this is important to us. We want to talk to you. It's important for us that they took the time to learn and think about it or go ask somebody to teach them, help set it up. That was a really kind of, again, from us, just anecdotally small little sliver, I know, but kind of a cool little thing there. But I want to ask another question about healthcare. And a lot of uh, a lot of the questions we get from our clients, especially even pre retirement or pre uh, kind of as they're kind of thinking about, you know, ages 60 and up is. Access and cost of healthcare. Uh, so, can we just get a little your sense of the state of healthcare in Maine? I know you talked a little bit about the age friendly health system here in in Maine Health, but can you talk a little bit about the state of healthcare in Maine and how is the service model working for Mainers?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think overall, there's a there's a big difference between cost and. <laughs> And access and and quality of care. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think there Mm -hmm. there's a whole bunch there. I would say that our health systems are are really good, (laughs) and are really being very thoughtful and proactive. And you know, as I mentioned, the age friendly health system uh, model is a really brilliant one. Um, What it does is it looks at the four M's, uh, and so which are. Um, What matters most? Mentation, dementia, you know, or your your thinking process, medication. um, Are your medications, you know, doing well for you or are they causing you to not be able to do what matters most to you, right? Say making you queasy or whatever. And then uh, finally mobility, you know, and that is all kinds of issues related to walking or driving or, you know, and by the way, oftentimes uh, all of those things, right, go together. Um, But it's, it's really, you know, and, 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 and then embedding that into the annual wellness visit, um, which everybody, you know, is entitled to. uh, and, And that is like, so important is to begin, you know, separating out, I have a cold and I'm going to see my doctor. And that's like the one time I see my doctor, but it's really, you know, I will say healthcare in Maine, typically they are early adopters and they are looking at social health needs the social determinants of health. We're talking, you know, we're a very engaged conversation about what's called a creating a community information exchange. Cause that would be, you know, in my mind, it's the thing that is the biggest barrier for people getting the good, getting good care is that so falls, you talked about falls. So mm-hmm. if I fall in South Portland and I uh, get transported to the hospital cause I'm injured, then that fall makes it into my electronic health record. If I fall and EMS comes and picks me up, the fall never makes it into my electronic health record. The fall is cataloged in EMS's system, but their current system is so messed up, (laughs) seriously, but it doesn't talk to, it doesn't share that information with the electronic health record. But more importantly, none of that information, even if it goes into the electronic health record, Right now, it goes into the electronic health record. When I go to the hospital, I get discharged. It's not serious, goes in my electronic health record. They might call me about the injury, but they're probably not going to call me about the reason for the fall. And so that information is never transmitted to a Mm. community organization Mm. that could go into the home and make an assessment about why that person fell, Mm. address the things you were talking about already. Lack Mm. of a handrail right? That's why I fell down the stairs because I don't have a handrail going down my stairs. It costs $50 to install the handrail. Simple, right? You can live more safely, unlikely to fall again. If we put some lighting in and, uh, you know, picked up your, your throw rugs and put some handrails in and you're going to live another 15 or 20 healthy years, you know, that doesn't happen. And so the person falls again, and -hmm. then this time has a really serious injury. So, so, you know, a community information exchange would allow for EMS to get that Data in would allow for a community based organization to get that data. And, you know, we're all talking about this is all of healthcare, you know, talking with community based services and Health Infonet about how do we create this? How do we create this best system? So I will say I find, um, you know, the federally qualified health centers are doing a terrific job. Um, Dartmouth Hitchcock, I work with in New Hampshire, they're actually doing this incredible program where they've taken all of the Medicare codes because they figure, right, money is everything, mm-hmm. right, to the, to the healthcare pra- for the practice, right? Mm-hmm. And they have figured out what good geriatric care should be by managing the Medicare codes and are training primary care practices in Maine and New Hampshire to actively utilize those codes to manage their older patients' health. Really which, cool is gonna and get, and which
1: is going right. to get better outcomes? Which is going to get better
2: outcomes? Which get more which, money for the practice? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I would say the state of healthcare is pretty good. in mean, um,
3: yeah, that's great. So I want to rotate a little bit here, Jess. Um, can you tell us about the main Wisdom Summit? Right. So you recently just held your eighth annual summit. So just kind of how did it go, and and what was the response?
2: Um, it was great. Um, so yeah, we hosted. It's sad. This was our second virtual mm-hmm. <laughs> Wisdom yeah. Summit. We, we usually do it at the Augusta Civic Center, usually, you know, have like 400, 450 people. Um, so we had fewer, you know, we last year and this year, we've got about 350 people. So mm-hmm. but that's pretty good. I mean, for people to spend... A day, you know, or even half a day online is really hard. And older people will tell us, no way will I do that. So, you know, it's like I spend all day, every day in front of a computer. It's like whether I'm, you know, at a conference or not, it doesn't matter. But, you know, that's not the reality for a lot of people. So Mm. I really have gotten emails like, I must have misread this. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, you you didn't. It's really an all day online conference. So it went really well. We had... uh, yeah a couple of national speakers which we were really excited about and we just got rave reviews actually you know i like to say there's one in every crowd and like we had one person in every one of our segments say eh wasn't exact but like that was it and yeah, they weren't, the same yeah. Person. they weren't the same person so it was just clearly like that speaker or that panel didn't connect with them otherwise people loved it so it's it awesome. great that's great yeah. to hear
1: so, so jess i want to I'll make a plug It's a, one thing we we'll, we talked about that our firm wants to join uh, the main council as well and become a member, but I, I think it would be really cool for us. Uh, Curtis and I have been talking about this off air is like yeah. actually do an in person uh, podcast recording at the main wisdom summit. Wow. So that'd be a fun thing to kind of create a little buzz and do a yeah. little recording, kind of get access and kind of talk about different speakers and things that are hot buttons that are being talked about and again, create a little publicity. That'd be a fun kind of on site recording. Yeah. Just, I think that would be a really cool thing to to do.
2: I love that. And I'll, I'll one-up you. Uh, we could do some podcasts leading up to it of some mm, of yeah. the subjects yeah uh, to kind of get people engaged in uh, in some of the subjects so yeah it's uh yeah that'd be great I think that's <laughs> terrific yeah but
1: but <laughs> but we can because essentially we've seen this with other industries is people oh, yeah. hey just hey get a recording there kind of people are like well what is oh, this yeah. and yeah. but it's also people can listen to the conversations and here's what's happening and yep. you know here's here's the speaker and what they're kind of but you could uh, anyway lots of I lots of it. lots of ideas I love, so. it. I love it that's, that's great Right. That would be a fun out of our comfort zone thing yeah. that Curtis and I and our team could do is get on a, in person and do some live recordings. I was say, fun.
3: you're putting us awesome. to the test here, Ben. Yes. I don't think Curtis we've ever like, done a live a show. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Uh, oh, man. All right. So I do yeah. have uh, kind of one last question for you, Jess. We've reached yep. the end of our, our conversation here. So kind of a fun question we love to ask all of our guests. So I want to ask you, what is your personal definition of retirement success, right? Because we're here on the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. So we, we think it's fun to, to kind of ask everyone that question.
2: I think, you know, retirement success means doing what brings you joy right up until your last days. And it's just that straightforward. I love uh, it. You know, we like to call retirement refirement. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, <laughs> because
2: we think people, you know, should get done. You know, and this is really the last generation. I mean, the boomers are the last generation of the long career, right? I mean, mm, get, yeah. done, get done, get done, whatever it is you've been doing for the last twenty or thirty years um, or longer, uh, and do something that you love or something that tests you or challenge. Yeah, I've always wanted to learn to paint, or you know, whatever. My my neighbor uh, is a seventy two. Uh, internationally renowned boat builder composite boat builder um right. you know built the i mean he's he's building you know one of those boats try whatever they are trimarans mm. um mm. Okay. Uh, in his barn uh so that we all can can all get on his boat so it means like it's fat i mean like he's building what we're watching is really amazing wow,
3: that is. You know,
2: but so he uh he actually reached out to the um the Harpswell Coastal Academy and said, Hey, I'm, I'm building a boat you want to send some kids over i'll teach them how to build boats um and he did you know i mean it's mm, that how fun it, exactly and they all built their own dinghy and they all learned they all learned applied math because you know like you have to these are like right i mean this is what Chinbro. here's another great story right Chinbro. that's what they do they use their older workers who can't work you know four tens anymore um but they're too young they're not going to get social security so i mean uh medicare so they they need health insurance so mm-hmm. they use them to teach applied math to kids who are like, you know, rock stars, uh, you know, in math, Mm. but not applied math. They don't know how to how to make a cabinet. You know, uh, and so that's what they do is, you know, it's like it's about understanding that we have all kinds of acquired wisdom and we've actually tried a bunch of stuff out that we know brings us joy. So like that's my challenge to everybody who's thinking about stopping, you know, paid work uh, is just do what brings you joy, but be productive, like be be a productive citizen um, in your community, to your neighbors, to your friends, to your family you know to our economy be productive and if you are productive you're going to be really happy
1: and and by the way you're also going to probably feel younger you're going to be by being more active and by keeping the connections you're just going to think so many more benefits to that and living longer and being happier and healthier and all those things so I, we, I that's a really great definition jess so thanks for for sharing that with us well thank you so much for coming on i know we probably could have gone for another four hours with you and, <laughs> and we might that's another point uh but but thank you so much this is um this is just a really good treat for curtis and i uh personally i know our listeners and our clients are really going to enjoy this conversation too so thank you thank you thank you so much for coming on today you're welcome it's sort of like a smorgasbord is what you yeah. Yeah, call. Exactly. Exactly. it exactly, exactly. Yes. state of the yeah. state right yeah, yeah exactly right so, yeah. so we'll just thanks so much we'll talk to you yeah. soon take care okay so Jess mauer on the podcast today man if you if you didn't get all jazzed up and energized up after listening to this conversation all right man, she is passionate about aging and in the state of Maine. So mm-hmm. if that was really clear to us, I think as we went through this today yeah. and it's just really tough because I think from a, um, from a structural perspective, and it's tough to kind of answer one question because of how much, you know, it really goes in lots of different ways is the world. Yeah. Our lives are impacted in lots of different ways by different things. As she's saying like energy, which impacting costs, cost to medical, medical to food, All all of those things kind of wrap up in there and, but again, she's, she's kind of, um, Having lots of really great conversations oh, yeah. uh, system wide and statewide, uh, so it's kind of a really cool thing to kind of have her on the show today. So again, one thing we always like to do is kind of do the yellow highlighter to something that we we really uh, enjoyed about today's conversation. So, Chris, why don't you kind of bat lead off for us with something that you you really love from our conversation with Jess?
3: Yeah, I think uh, I think this would be a good one to just take the yellow highlighter to the whole thing, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. So no, it, you know, you you mentioned it, Ben, how just how passionate Jess is and how, you know, evident that was if you listen to this and I think a a piece that stuck out to me is like, you know, a, a good chunk of this episode was talking about areas where there needs to be improvement and I think we've talked about how you know, uh, the first step to improvement is identifying those areas. And I think that's what this episode did. And then, you know, it's just so refreshing, I think, to hear in whether it's in housing or, or healthcare or the community aspect technology, there's people having these conversations about how to make it better, right? I mean, you know, the plan may not be there right now, and it's going to be fixed tomorrow. Like we, we understand that. But I think, you know, her point of getting the Department of Labor and Department of Transportation and all those people in the room, right? She jo- she kind of brought it up as a lighthearted story. But it's so accurate that just to get people together and to start – you know putting these plans in place and, and trying to make progress there and and I think that's a good step and and she w- she spoke really highly of you know our healthcare systems how proactive they're being the school systems or the university systems so uh, again I I don't want to feel like I'm saying you know the whole thing was impactful but it really was and and I think she did a great job kind of laying out what the state is doing well what the state has done well and and where the state needs to improve
1: yeah. And, and by the way, like nothing and nobody is ever perfect, right? right. So there's always going to be right. gaps. There's always going to be things that we could be doing better and improving. Uh, I think one of the uh, key things is having a culture of wanting to improve. Yep. And I, I think that's what's well, something that, again, through the main council, and she's saying 120 organizations. So to convince like two organizations on something that they can agree upon, but to say, hey, here's 120 organizations of there, there's challenges. We want to be part of the solution and we want to be part of the conversation is really important as well. So I think it's really important work. And again, just kind of working with nonprofits and boards as we have, and we do, you got to have a passionate executive director, which Jess is right. Yeah. And oh, yeah. someone that really lives and breathes the mission of the organization. You can clearly tell she does. Mm-hmm. But again, one thing that I kind of took away from today's show, again, kind of hearing about Maine relative to the country and hearing that feedback of, hey, you know, Maine, while the point of, yes, we have an aging population, it's in kind of talking about births versus immigration and yeah that's really not an easy solve right is what she's saying is like look this this hasn't changed for 30 years right is that we really haven't been replacing uh people as they've passed with with new babies or immigration and that just has just not happened Mm -hmm. but kind of hearing a little bit more about well here's the services that we are needing and by the way that has changed because we continue to live longer we need more and more services to continue to live and by the way we need we have we need more social connection as we age because we tend to get more isolated as we age as well. So hearing about all those pieces together in how that's not just a main issue, that is a national issue. Yep. That's not just a regional issue. That's a national issue. That, But looking at Japan, looking at Europe, and they're, again, kind of a little bit ahead of us on some of this. And that how they've looked at infrastructure and built and invested in it. That's something I think is pretty important and as I know we made the offhand comment is like, look, we're all going to get older.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right. We are all going to get older. I don't care if you're two years old, if you're a hundred years old, we're all going to get older. And, and kind of hearing about what's happening from an aging perspective and what st- systems are there for us, whether it be 20, 30, 40, 60, 70, 80, 90, hundred. That there's structures for all of us, for all of our ages, and continue to support us to be independent and live the life that we really want to live, which is really a lot of the of the show that we have. So I I think that was a really kind of again, kind of a cool thing. Kind of this concept of state of state was the idea. Yeah. Um, So Jess was able to share with us some of the links to um, some of these papers, and so we'll supply them in our show notes. Mm -hmm. So you you can see the transcript and get a little bit more information on the main council of aging and some of the main state plan of aging and all the other kind of pieces we discussed today, you can see in our show notes, which you can go to blogguidancepointllccom backslash five, three, because yep. it's episode 53. 53. You can uh, check us out there. Again, we're in our 50s, so we're not quite in our 60s yet. A little pre-retirement, still working on pre-refirement if you're Jess. That's right. But um, but again, appreciate you guys all listening in. It's just a pleasure for us to be able to have this opportunity to be in front of you and talk about aging and the state of Maine. Hope you uh, continue to tune in and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>
0: Ladies and gentlemen, you've just listened to an information-filled episode of the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. While this show is about finding more ways to improve your retirement happiness, Guidance Point Advisors' mission is to help our clients create a fulfilling retirement. We do financial planning so that people can enjoy retirement and align their monetary resources to their goals. If you're wondering about your own personal success, we invite you to reach out to us to schedule a 45-minute listening session